Welcome to the Lapsus Lima podcast. Please support us by signing up for member-exclusive content at lapsuslima.com. Hello, I'm David Getson. Ignore the violent and resentful overtones. Mull on it. And you may realize Islamic terrorists are on to something in referring to Western powers, indeed, to Western civilization as a whole, as being made up of crusaders. In so doing, they assign a lineage that few Westerners still fully understand or acknowledge. But if we seriously consider crusading as integral, to the Western character, it might disclose something about ourselves. If you can't already tell, this episode is a departure. The conclusion to our series on Malevich is as much about looking through the meaning of his art as it is about looking at it. With that in mind, imagine what sort of character would say the following, and where, if these words were in a movie? Nothing in the objective world is as secure and unshakable as it appears to our conscious minds. The various complementary and conflicting feelings, or rather, images and ideas which as reflections of these feelings take shape in our imaginations, struggle incessantly with each other. The awareness of God against that of the devil. The sensation of hunger versus a feeling for the beautiful. The awareness of God strives to vanquish the awareness of the devil, and the flesh at the same time. It tries to make credible the evanescence of earthly goods and the everlasting glory of God. Art, too, is condemned, except when it serves the worship of God the church. Out of the awareness of God arose religion, and out of religion the church. This isn't Dostoevsky's Grand Inquisitor. It is not a zealous Lutheran calling for the armor of God or a 13th century bishop damning the Albigensian Cathars. It is Soviet citizen Malevich, writing in the non-objective world, the 1927 manifesto where he described how suprematists had deliberately given up objective representation of their surroundings in order to reach the summit of the true unmasked art. In this excerpt, you can pick up the trail of a dying time in which the place of the church, of secular life, and even that 
of atheist revolutionary politics had been defined through their struggle against or their progress within the asymptotic tendency towards a telos. This imperfect but ever-perfectible extension set within infinite or infinitesimal space is utterly characteristic of the Western worldview. Little wonder that the skyscraper should be amongst our defining architectural forms. But Malevich's East-inflected emphasis on the power of embodiment to make the evanescence credible points to something different known as immanence, that is, to the sense of operating from within. A familiar example of a system that operates on immanent principles is that of seed growth. Even when accounting for genetic clones, it can be said that no two trees are alike, while many are similar, especially when noting their behavior through the different seasons of the year. And it is in these similarities where we glean practical information, knowing that maples yield syrup at a given time each spring comes only from observing past maple behavior, but one can easily misidentify a silver maple as a sugar maple, drive a deep tap one cold morning, and get nothing. This is how analysis by historical analogy is always weighed in the balance against its results. As the seasons and years form layers of experience by which one can correctly assess the behavior of plants, the human events and social systems of the past create layers of historical information amenable to a similar analysis. But the strata must be properly selected and aligned to be informative, or, dare we go this far, predictive. And so, the crucial question becomes, do the analogies we make advance understanding or not? Now, while Malevich was no preacher of religion, his manifesto emphatically stated how art had been connected to the power of both spirit and the church, which we must recall is a body, up until quite recently in Russian history. Just ten years earlier, the Russian people had known no separation between church and state. In his effort, to repurpose that old spiritual connection to the dawning Soviet institutions, Malevich set forth 
on a most original solution, that the immaterial should be wrought from the material. With this information in mind, consider again the rise in new relations of power that resulted in the Crusades. Gloomy as it is, we are clearly in another cycle of religious uprising, and it is by analyzing the similarities between our own time of zealotry and that of eras past that we may discern our civilization's momentum in more consequential detail. The launch of Western art and architecture was bankrolled and protected from the internal wars of Europe by the trans-Mediterranean raids of crusading armies. The fulcrum and unified expression of this shift was the Gothic cathedral. These houses of a transcendent, universal, and now conquering God became a kind of engine for the infinite expansion of something like this. Those Pentecostal words mean the Spirit of the Lord has filled the orb of the earth. The culture form grew, intensified, and became ripe when sparkling Baroque interiors resounded with This theme of fulfillment is also found in the title of one of Bach's most notable pieces. Vom Himmel hoch, da komm ich her. From heaven on high to earth I come. And even in pieces not so titled, a sense of divine invasion pervades them. Organ tones shake the cathedral nave, overwhelming believers and humbling the unconverted. In many ways, the start of the Baroque brought the spirit imminent within the Gothic to its full embodiment. And yet, at that high point of the West's world domination, its seams began to pull apart. Empire expanded, but crystallized. Energy seeped into decadence, driving the movements and art we have come to love or hate into the forms we know them for. By the time Otto von Bismarck noted 
well into the 19th century that the Great European War was a question of when, rather than if, he correctly expected its trigger to be in the Balkans, a geography that has since lent its name to our contemporary notions of fragmentation. By the early 1970s, cultural energy had dissipated so much that Krautrock band Kraftwerk gestured to Bach in the final song of their first album titled Vom Himmel Hoch. But rather than celebrating the invasion by the spirit of a willing world, this was a sound that a child could have woken up to in 1944. The drift of the crystallized West continues, even if it is in selling sculpted ashes as postmodern patent medicine. Many figures in the early 20th century looked to the Gothic, the Age of the Crusades, as a map for cultural redemption and re-emergence. In their manifesto, Walter Grotheus and company expressly set out to follow this exact analogy in order to better compose an architecture from the culture that they sensed needed to stagger out of the debris of the Great War. This sense of ill-defined characteristic and premature form is also why Corbusier entitled his book Towards an Architecture. And even today, the intricate convulsions of postmodernism left aside, we would be hard-pressed to see the development of a supra-industrial architecture moving the needle of results when it comes to design. The information age may still be more of an appendix to the industrial era than its successor. Without recourse to the digital tools of our age, the Bauhaus had set upon the unenviable task of bootstrapping, using the industrial process itself to assist in overcoming the damage that industry had done. And though it failed to achieve its founding goal of Gothic unity, it may have been the harbinger of a new culture. Grotheus may have been correct in comparing our epoch to the 1100s, but wrong in its precision as to timing. Several styles presaging the Gothic with parallel bursts of organized activity were also focused on reviving a lost sense of cultural vitality. We feel that though the Bauhaus was making the correct timeline analogy, 
it was mistaken in pinpointing the location of it. What comes to mind when speaking of a flurry of activity after an endless war, of an era of state-sponsored art, of monumental buildings breaking with tradition as they gesture to heroic ages past, if not the Carolingian period? What is the Seagram's building, if not our own equivalent of Charlemagne's cathedral, where business is religion? And wasn't Aachen the church in which Mies van der Rohe took mass as a boy? For both the international style and the Carolingian Renaissance, periods of initial optimism were followed by crushing setbacks, at first by brutal nationalist war, and later by invasions at the hands of disorganized looters. These foreigners became, in time, uneasy immigrants in England, France, and Italy. And so, with even casual scrutiny, Going into detail strengthens rather than weakens the connections between the 9th and 20th centuries. With this correction of chronology in mind, Grofius and his generation were not so much of a reborn high middle age, but more attuned to 9th century characters like Odo of Metz, the Armenian who oversaw the construction of Aachen's Palatine Chapel. As for the Gothic cathedrals, the spirit of which so many claimed to see and build, they're still well ahead of us. Our times equivalent to the Abbot Suger may not yet be born. So where can we look? for signs of new growth? How can we recognize the shoots of a new culture? Music is not a bad place to start. We already discussed how the cathedral was a vessel for sound, the body of which was largely shaped both for and by the new polyphony expressing the Western ideals of infinity and expansion. Vocal resonance in church space vespers accounted for a sort of oral twinning, a factoring of voice into the single-line melody of Gregorian singing. Soon on the heels of chant notation, came polyphony, the deliberate composition of multi-voice harmony. That concept of voice was eventually abstracted in two ways. First, for harmony in polyphony in the Gothic, and later for timbre, that is, varied instrumental tone with the organ, as expressed in Bach and other Baroque composers. In this purview, 
The Gothic was a transition of birth. The Baroque, a transition of maturation. And the long 19th century, a transition of decline. So where are we now as we speed through the 21st century? Ours is a time of pseudomorphosis, of new glass poured into old shapes. In one of his Columbia University lectures, Richard Bullitt speaks of the stories sung among the desert nomads of North Africa and Arabia. A prized skill among singers and listeners was a sense of interlayered polyrhythm, often used for dramatic effect. Yet, for decades, anthropologists and scholars were frustrated that their students in the West could not pick up this polyrhythm. Even after pages of analysis and lectures, it was hard to get people to hear this nuance the Bedouins so valued. And then, as Bullet put it, rap was invented. And he rapidly started to note how, instead of being confused, his students would say something like, that's flow, when listening to Bedouin poets. This is more than a charming anecdote of higher education broadening minds. Bullet's remarks evince a profound cultural shift. What Bullet noted through his first-hand experience with generations of undergrad students is that the genre sparked a culture-wide transformation in the sensory understanding of art. It was not just that an ancient skill of Bedouin performance had faded to near extinction, but that it was becoming literally imperceptible. As Bullet emphasized, a Westerner in the early 70s would not hear what the scholars were describing. Fast forward a scant 15 or 20 years, and the kids now understood an aspect of this art form intuitively and instantly. Now let's project that equation forward. Let's put ourselves in the Bedouin's sandals by having one of our main artistic identifiers become invisible to later generations. In some classroom of the future, a teacher will hold up two paintings of a boudoir, one by Matisse, another by Degas, and say to the class, now look over here. This painting is different because it uses something called perspective. So it looks like there's a sense of depth to the room, to which the students might reply by saying, what do you mean? They're both paintings of naked women, both just color patches on canvas. 
And then, some years later, a popular new visual art will reassert perspective, and the students will again perceive the difference. But if people have reached the point of not hearing flow or seeing perspective, no amount of lecturing on polyrhythm or Brunelleschi will get them to do so. Experience fills those gaps. The risk is in what has already been lost to the senses, artistically and otherwise, as the industrial world has grown more uniform. A loss that's at the root of what Malevich was contesting. While modern and modernist construction addressed many of the faults inherent in old buildings, the Faustian trade-off was that valued qualities that were once common to pre-industrial architecture became scarce. The patterns that had once been so integrally and unconsciously woven into the structures of the past have faded. The diminution is so acute that, as with rhythmic flow, some people are unable to pick up the difference when it is before them. It is no accident that, as early as 1911, Adolf Loos began his essay, Ornament and Crime, with a discussion on the development of color perception, where orange was not visibly distinct from red during the time of the Germanic tribes, and violet became distinct from purple by the 18th century. His subsequent work in so-called Raumplan, an architectural harmony through the organization of space, was an effort to synthesize, to awaken this new sense that he and others like Malevich and Mutasius had anticipated. He did not just want to cast off old forms for no reason. What he wanted was to shed the scales that had covered the eyes of both builders and the public. Loos's architecture looked backwards and forwards at once. The Gothic cathedral, the mother form of Western architecture, was born together with a twin art, choral music. Both emphatically deployed a sense of infinite axial space. If Western civilization went on to champion infinite extension and divisibility in art and science, where do our senses point today? In the example of musical flow, we discussed the resurfacing of intricate, layered 
rhythm. Not as polyphony, but as distinct harmony of symmetrical and asymmetrical overlaps played out in time. The early modernists did apprehend this counterpoint as an emerging harmonics of space, but they were closer to the center of the Faustian age than we are now, and so had infinite space, Cartesian, coordinate, or otherwise, as a fundamental symbol for most means of understanding. Interestingly, alternatives to the Cartesian coordinate as spatial heuristic have already begun to develop, even if some of these ideas are admittedly half-formed. In our last intermezzo, I derisively brought up Gilles Deleuze, a philosopher who, until recently, was held out as a very fashionable shibboleth by architectural gatekeepers. Facile knowledge of him was enough to grant or dismiss favor. On a few occasions, though, he expertly put the wrong thumb on the right ideas. Among them, monads, folds, rhizomes, and identity as a sensory loop. His take on layers is enmeshed within his discourse on folds, which he refers to as invaginations of the outside that could not occur at all alone if no true interiorities did not exist elsewhere. This can, of course, be put more simply. A fold is a limited manner of viewing what is more appropriately presented as a layer, and there are many instances of this appearing in 20th century architecture. The sense of space and Raumplan that Mies and Wright developed, for example, was a layering of space and not, as some historians have proclaimed, about the asymmetry or sense of plans being open. So, when Mies went from expressing plan to expressing structure, and interleaved partitions were ditched for open space on a grid, the dawning sense his generation had been struggling to identify went out the plate glass window. If anything, the late Mies had an earlier style, and his move was a reactionary one. The interlocking of space was an emerging kind of polyphony.
one can hear a similar kind of simultaneous overlap in the funk and soul records that rap later sampled. Perhaps as North African poetry once did, a sense of timing provided active rhythmic harmony, while melody lay in relative repose. The 21st century mind that understands flow can also grasp the tuning and balancing acts in the young Mies, later Los, and the prairie-style floor plans of Wright. We shall soon zone into them to discern the early shapes of things that could have come or did. In attempting to glean an emerging culture, Spengler gestured to the plain without limits as prime symbol of a new world system, one that Russia was specifically a part of. We are not aware if Spengler came at all across Malevich, he was dismissive of modern art in general, though his conception of symbol fits with how the Russian avant-garde was striving to envision the world. Tellingly, within the pliant ultra-nominalism of Deleuze's 1980s works, the philosophy where everything is precisely everything else, great efforts were made to describe a plane of imminence. Perhaps the charitable view is that his perception and words at the time were not yet up to providing the clarity that further experience with the emerging quality of layering might bring us today. Even now, with adults having since childhood dealt with layered windows on computers and hidden planes within a Photoshop file, the new sense of space can be daunting. Just as college students once found Bedouin poetry bewildering, we should remember that people accustomed to DOS-style infinite linear command-line interfaces on a computer found the purportedly friendly graphic display of a Macintosh's overlapping windows off-putting. Our current analysis of layer presents it as plane multiplied in and across dimensions. If that sounds esoteric, take a look at the pictures Malevich created to communicate this sense, some of which we posted on our webpage for the last episode. By seeing these qualities in Malevich's art, we can appreciate how Spengler was, by his own admission, not all the way there yet but giving us the first letter of an alphabet. Musical development may yield us a second, and we might infer 
an implicit series forming in the patterns we can now observe. Going forward into this unknown, we find a very specific way to receive Nietzsche's injunction that a world without music would be a mistake. We must test the correctness of our mapped analogies by how the jumble and chaos of art and life begins to take on a new sense of order and pattern with subsequent understanding. And only once a full generation has perceived, understood, and taught under this awareness can deliberate activity be directed to the conscious creation of new cultural forms. We need to see the cathedrals coming before we can build them. An age of supposedly singular buildings envisioned by heroic grand masters is fading. The great architects as we have known them are disappearing, or, like old pharaohs, becoming stars. The transformed architect, the new designers, all traffic in interrelation, insofar as layers are what take place where entities and spaces overlap. The tuning and tempering of all these systems is the better architecture of our time. It is already visible in software developing faster than brick. A similar process happened with medieval software, when illuminated manuscripts presaged the Gothic arts. And any honest software developer will agree that the analogy to monks is apt. The Bauhaus's yearning for a glittering cathedral was as admirably doomed as Charlemagne's longing to clothe Aachen in Romanesque arches. Despite all this, intimations of a new culture persisted at the Bauhaus. Join us as we re-enter the school to attend Clay's famed introductory course next time on Lapsus Lima. As always, you can support this podcast through Patreon by visiting lapsuslima.com, unlocking your own member benefits. We extend a heartfelt welcome to our newest member, Daniel. Credits? For this episode's music can be read in episode 41's entry on our website. The classical music recordings are public domain.